chapter 7, 2 Chronicles, that's in the Old Testament, not Corinthians, as sometimes I am prone to say. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is where we're going to be, and we're going to continue in the series we started last Sunday titled, If My People. If you were not here last Sunday, you can hear that message on our website. Uh, You can access that there and catch up to speed really quickly. Uh, It's just going to be a three-part series uh, for this If My People series, and yet one of the most, I believe, one of the most pivotal ones perhaps all year uh, because of the uh, what we're going to be looking at in this particular passage of Scripture. And so just a few moments, I'll catch you up with what we covered earlier and then move on to what we're going to be looking at this morning in the second message of this series called If My People. So have you heard tomorrow is a, an eclipse? Have you heard that right? Anybody not know that tomorrow is going to get dark during a portion of the day? I think you're probably all aware of that. Kids are out of school. That's really good. I mean, how awesome is that? You get a free day just because it's going to get dark. Uh, times are really, really good. And so most of the kids are out of school. Some maybe going half a day. How many of you have your glasses? You, you got your Eclipse glasses, any of them? How many of you have one on right now? That would not be good. Okay. Uh, somebody told me between services that Ace uh, Hardware across the street there down the road sold 400 and something pairs of them in 15 minutes. Uh, and so they are going like crazy. And so, you know, everybody's into the eclipse. You know, I did a little bit of, uh, of, of study online and just kind of reading and, and uh, catching up on the eclipse. Some of you may have done that. So I came across the NASA website. Now, this is NASA. All right? These are the big guys, right? They, they, when you come to anything that's related to, you know, events like an eclipse, I mean, NASA, they're going to be on top of it. And so I came across some instructions. This is on the, on the NASA website. Just some safety instructions that you might need to be aware of. I pulled off three of them that I thought were interesting to find on the NASA website. The first one, if you're going to be viewing the, the uh, eclipse, this is from NASA, do not stop along the interstate to view the eclipse. So if you're driving tomorrow and it suddenly gets dark and you're on I-95, just don't slam on the brakes and stop and look out through your sunroof. That is not going to be a good thing to do. So that's, that is one of, their, one of their instructions. The second instruction was do not take photographs while driving, okay? So according to NASA, when you're cruising, you know, and, and you're riding and you see the eclipse, don't, you know, put your, your phone out, you know, or your camera or any of that kind of stuff while you're driving. You don't want to take photographs that way. And then this is my favorite one. Um, uh, after having tried on a pair of these glasses, this is absolutely my favorite one. It says, this is from NASA now. These are the big boys. Do not try to wear opaque eclipse glasses while operating a motor vehicle. So if you're driving tomorrow, don't have the glasses on, okay? Because that is just not going to be safe, and it will be no excuse whenever you have an accident. So everybody's excited about this eclipse, all right? And, and it is hopefully going to be neat. But there are two things that we need to be aware of. One is that in order to really experience this monumental event, and it really is. I mean, it's not like you see a, a total solar eclipse every day. For us, we're not quite in that path of, you know, 65-mile swath from northwest to southeast, but we're close. In order to experience that kind of a, just a phenomenon, I mean, there are a couple things that happen, have to happen. One is that the conditions have to be right. I mean, if it is driving rain tomorrow when this happens, I mean, you can't reschedule it. If it's driving rain and a huge cloud cover, I mean, yeah, it's going to feel interesting when it gets dark, but it's not going to be the experience that you would have hoped for. The conditions have to be right. That's only up to God. I mean, we can't control the weather. We we can't somehow, you know, pull the string and make it sunny if if the weather's not so good then. So the conditions have to be right. But but the second thing that's really going to make this uh, hopefully a great experience is that your position has to be right. You have to be in the right place. 
I mean, all of North America is going to see a portion of this eclipse. But if you're in other parts on the globe, you're not going to see any eclipse whatsoever. If you're in the wrong place, if you're not in the right placement, then you're not going to experience this monumental event. And that is totally up to us. The conditions have to be right. That's God's part. But our position has to be right. That's our part. God has his part, and we have our part. Now, here's what we've been looking at for, for the last week or so. We've been mentioning it even longer than this, that one of the things that some of us are praying for is, is revival on the inside of this church family. In other words, when I say revival, I don't mean scheduling services. What I'm talking about is that there be a, uh, an experience in our lives that's not superficial, it's not merely emotion, but rather there is something that goes on in us where God just uh, brings about a renewal. He br- brings us to a different place in our life, and he sin that's in us, that he, uh, that, that he deals with that in us, that our hearts break over that, but then we turn from it and we leave it behind as we walk in a close relationship with God, that God brings that kind of revival to us as a church family. Back row, front row, platform, sound booth, everywhere in between, that God does that kind of a work in us called revival, that God accomplishes that. At the same time, we're praying for our community who doesn't care that this church exists, who doesn't always care that there is a God who loves them, but we're praying for this community and for this city that God would bring what we would call an awakening, right? Not a revival because there's nothing spiritually there to be revived, but rather he would bring an awakening that he'd peel the blindness away for those in our community and city who don't know Christ, to have a desire for him, to, to, to begin to experience God working in their lives where they had the sense of a need for peace and, and a need for joy, and a, a need for fulfillment, a need for the slate to be wiped clean, and a hunger to know God personally. That God brings that about in our community, the hearts of the people that are here. God has his part. Only God can do that. Only God can revive a heart that's grown cold, that's grown dull that's grown insensitive to who he is. Only God can bring life and, and, and a spark, right, to a person who has never really considered him before. Only God can do that. Those conditions have to be right. However, we have a part to play in that we have to be in the right place before God. We have to have our hearts positioned in such a way to where when God moves, we're ready to move with him. When he speaks, we're ready to follow. And whatever his conditions are, we're willing to meet them. Because our hearts are so desperate for that kind of revival, and we're de- we have such a desire to see our community brought into relationship with him. Last week, I mentioned something called the Welsh Revival from 1904-1905. Those kind of things happened before historically in our country, around the world as well. 1904-1905, the Welsh Revival, uh, 100,000 people that came to Christ in that one nation in a six-month six month period of time. It was God at work. In our own country, there was a time called the First Great Awakening. Some of you may be familiar with that. We've actually had two that theologians would refer to, but the First Great Awakening was before our country even really formally existed. It would have been in the time when we were colonies, and, and uh, during that period of time in the early to mid-1700s, you would have found that there was a, this time where God moved over about a 40, 45-year span. 
And he used some key individuals to help lead that, but it was a genuine movement of God. A, a fellow named Jonathan Edwards was one of the key figures in that. Jonathan Edwards was extremely brilliant, extremely talented, very, very sharp. Graduated from Yale University at the age of 13 years old. Graduated from Yale. I mean, very, very sharp, very, just a brilliant, brilliant theologian. And yet, he was not anyone who was overtly, uh, uh, you know, just, he wasn't like a charismatic leader necessarily. In fact, they say that whenever he would preach, uh, this is in the early, again, to mid-1700s, when he would preach, he would hold his manuscript in one hand and he would hold a candle in the other. And that was how he would preach a message every single Sunday. I mean, I mean, how, wow, I'm sure people flopped for that kind of dynamic delivery, right? A candle in one hand, reading the manuscript in the other. And yet it wasn't about Jonathan Edwards. It was, it was about the Spirit of God moving through his life, moving in the hearts of other people. He preached a message once called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It wasn't t- uh, typical for him. He wasn't a fiery, uh, what many would call a hell and brimstone type preacher, even though he would obviously preach on the truth of those, those two places. But he, he was more laid back. He, he was not a fiery, in-your-face type, type of a preacher. And yet he preached this message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he, he talked about how, how those without Christ are hanging uh, but by the, the, the single strand of a spider's web a, in the hand of God. And it's just the mercy of God that keeps them from plunging into eternal uh, uh, a payment for their sins in hell without the grace of God. I mean, just, just an enormously uh, blatant message of truth. And God would use that message and, and he would use other, other things uh, that were going on in that period to draw people to a hunger for Christ. Awaken them to the truth. What Jonathan Edwards would say about some of those marks of revival would be that a genuine movement of God is is demonstrated not by the emotionalism on the surface, but by a greater love for the person of Jesus, a greater hunger for truth, a greater desire to turn to God's word to find that truth, a, a desire to demonstrate genuine, authentic love towards not just God, but towards other people as well. And that those would be marks of a genuine movement of God. And we have to ask ourselves, how many churches today, how many churches in this country alone have come to a place where they are dry, they are cold, and they are dusty, and it's about checking off the boxes. It's not about engaging the heart of God, and it's not about being a part of the work that God wants to accomplish in the lives of other people. Churches today are in need of revival. And it's not just the church, but churches today are filled with Christians like you and me who at times find ourselves at a place where our, where our fire has grown more dim, where our walk has grown to a point to where we're stepping over the boundary lines that we know God doesn't want for us, to where our hearts don't beat for the salvation of others. We don't pray for others. We don't reach others. We don't, we don't seek to share the love of Christ and show the love of Christ to others and to where our hearts grow cold and insensitive to the very God who made us. You know, it's in that setting that God makes a promise. He makes a promise in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a promise that it not only extended to the people in Solomon's day, but extends to every single one of us today as well. For those who are tired of going through the motions, for those who have embraced more of a religion rather than a genuine, vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus, God presents this passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles chapter 7. And it's in this passage that he paints a picture of what genuine revival looks like and what it looks like when people come home 
to a deeper relationship with him. The context of this passage is that King Solomon has just completed the building of the temple. These are the golden years of Israel's history. You had three kings. You had Saul that reigned for 40 years. You had King David who reigned for 40 years. And then you had Solomon, David's son, who reigned for 40 years. This was a period in Israel's history where monetarily they were very wealthy. They were, they were stable as a country. Military was strong. If you asked anybody on the street, hey, how are things going in our nation? They would all say things are great, never been better. Well, King David had wanted to build a temple to God. However, God would not allow David to do that, but he would allow his son Solomon to to build this temple. And this temple would be important because it was like an outward manifestation of the presence of God. Whenever we send a team to Cuba, as we're about to do in October, we've got 11, no, we've got 12 people, I think, going to Cuba in October. Uh, Whenever that team goes, part of that team is going to help building an actual physical church building uh, for a church there that we partner with, Jellibert Baptist Church, uh, about 45 minutes from Havana. And the reason that it's important to help them build this church is because in Cuba, a communist country where the government pretty much runs most of everything, it is a visible testimony that when a church owns the property on which they build their physical building, it is a testimony to the community that God is here and he's not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it is a visible present, it is a visible picture of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the temple accomplished much the same purpose. The temple was very important to Israelite spiritual life, and Solomon would have just finished the temple. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, he's prayed to God. They've celebrated what God has done. He prays to God. And in chapter 7, we find then that God responds. And he responds by coming to Solomon and speaking into Solomon's life. Look at what it says here as we pick up in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, reading down through verse 14. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, And he said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place, the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. As we looked at last Sunday, just as a little reminder, there are seven action verbs on this, on, in this particular passage. Now, some of you may not be real English speakers, you know, or English speakers, I guess you are, but English, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you don't love English necessarily. So when it helps you order a meal at the restaurant or get to, you know, accomplish what you want to get done. You're not one who studies English, and, uh, and so I've been speaking it for a while, but I'm no English professional. So just follow me here. There are seven action verbs. Three of those verbs apply ultimately to God. Four of those verbs apply to us. Look at the very end of that passage. The three action verbs that apply to God are that he will hear, he will forgive, and he will heal. God says, I will do that. Those are the three actions that I promise you I will do. I will hear your prayer, I will forgive your sin, and I will heal your land. And I think it would be safe to say that that healing ultimately extends not just on a national level, but down into the hearts of those who know him. I will hear, I will forgive, I will heal. 
However, there is a condition. You'll see the very first word there is highlighted. I highlighted that for a reason, the word if. There is a condition to this because God says, think about an eclipse there. There's God's part. The conditions have to be right. Then there's our part. We have to be in the right position to experience it. It's much the same. God says, I've got my part. I will hear. I'll forgive. I will heal. But you've got a part in this too. If you want to experience me moving in your life in a genuine way, in a way that you've never experienced before, beyond the superficial, beyond the mere emotions, if you want to experience a deep, vibrant, growing, active walk with me, then there is a condition attached. In relationship with me through Christ, this is understood because God says, I'm speaking to my people. He says, if my people, here are the four verbs, will humble themselves and pray and seek and turn, then I will do the things that I'm responsible for. But that word if is crucial. God loves us unconditionally. We know that. It's all through Scripture. However, we have to come to Him on His terms, not ours. And we have to be okay with God saying, I'll do what I promise to do at the end if you do what I've called you to do. My terms, not yours. You okay with that? God makes the terms. No playing games. He says, if you do this, I will do that. This morning, I want to look at the first two. Humble, pray. What it means to humble ourselves, what it means to pray. God willing, next Sunday, we'll look as we finish out this series at what it means to seek and what it means to turn. There's a takeaway I hope you'll jot down. And the takeaway is this, that humility and prayer are catalysts. I would say all four of these words, but we'll focus on these two. Humility and prayer are catalysts for revival and spiritual awakening. Revival on the inside amongst the people of God, those who know him, that we'd be taken to a deeper place than we've ever been before. Clean in our walks, close in our walks. And spiritual awakening in the hearts of those who don't know him, that there's a stirring to know Christ. Humility and prayer are the catalysts for that revival and for that spiritual awakening. You know what a catalyst is already, right? A catalyst is something that precedes a significant action or a significant event. Uh, let, let me give an, an example. Let, let's say today, after, after church is done, you go home. Uh, and, and you get the grill, okay? You, you get your grill out. And I'm not talking about the pansy gas grills, right? I mean, this is like I've got. <laughs> yeah, this is the, 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 the old school. This is the man's grill. I mean, you get the charcoal. You drag it out. It's a 100-pound bag of charcoal. You get off the top shelf in your garage, and you pour it into your, your grill, right? And you're like, ah, you get one of those, right? And you're going to get home, and you're going to get that charcoal. And let's just say that you put the lighter to it. Actually, you get two stones, and you... No, I'm just saying we won't go that far. You're going to get the, the, the lighter. You're going to light the, that, the, that charcoal. And, and imagine for a moment that it doesn't light. Okay? It just won't light. It's been in the garage too long or whatever's going on. It's not going to light. So what you do is, because you've got this and you're proud of it, you've got, you've got a big old thing of charcoal, um, a lighter fluid, right? And so you get out there, and I'm not talking about just a one hand. It's two hands squirting that lighter fluid on there. You're proud of it. You got some grass, weeds, you want, you do those too. But you got the charcoal, you, know, you got the lighter fluid, and you strike that match, and when you put it there, it's like, and you give a little hearty, right? 
fire. <laughs> what that lighter fluid is, is a catalyst. You have burgers and steak, maybe hot dogs, because of this catalyst called the lighter fluid. It was what was present before a significant event. I'm no Florida Gator fan, right? But I am a fan of Tim Tebow. I liked him. Too. I hated him when he played for Florida. Can I? I hated him when he played at Florida. Okay. <laughs> Not really hate, you know. I, I, I hated it when he beat us every single year, right? Except for that one year that I, I was there, right, John? Those were good days, right? And, uh, and so there was a year, 2008, Florida uh, had just gotten beat by Ole Miss. Nobody saw it coming, 31 30. Uh, just an sh- absolute shocker, 2008. And. Uh, Tim Tebow gave this speech that became monumental. I mean, it actually became like a monument outside, you know, there at Florida Field. And uh, uh, he just gave this speech where he says, I promise that no one will play any harder after this day than I will. And, you know, he's crying and all that kind of stuff. Georgia Bulldogs don't cry, but Tim Tebow did. And so, you know, it's just this enormous moment. Well, you know what? Florida ran the table. They won the national title that year. Many would say it was that speech that was what? A catalyst. It was a catalyst. It was a change agent. It was something that occurred that changed everything that came afterwards. And when we think about having a deep walk with God and a close walk with God and a walk where God is at work in us and our lives are living out purely and when we stumble, we're quick to confess that sin and come back to the heart of God. Whenever we begin to think about a a, a whole entire community being awakened to their need for forgiveness and their need for Christ, we cannot orchestrate that. We cannot manufacture that. Only God can do that kind of heart work. However, there is a catalyst, there is often a change agent where God says, if my people will only humble themselves and pray to me, that is what is going to precede a work that I'm going to bring about. But it starts with humility. If we are not humble, we will not see our need to pray. Humility, or or the, the, the antithesis of humility is pride. Pride is what got the enemy kicked out of heaven to begin with. You look at Isaiah chapter 14, look at it real quickly, what it says here. Isaiah Chapter 14, speaking of the fall of Satan himself, look down to verse 13, halfway down. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Listen to this last one. I will make myself like the most high. This is what happened when the enemy, Satan himself, put himself up against God. He got booted out of heaven. Scripture confirms it. And he's been at work trying to dethrone God ever since unsuccessfully, by the way, no matter what things may look like in our culture. And then what was the temptation that he brought in Genesis chapter 3 when he came to God's first creation of people, Adam and Eve? What was the temptation? Oh, I know God has said not to eat of the fruit, but if you eat of this fruit, you will become what? Just like God. It looks a lot like what led to his own downfall, doesn't it? Pride. Pride always precedes a train wreck. Think about the biggest train wrecks in celebrity world, right? Preceding those train wrecks are self-indulgent, prideful life. But let's not be too quick to cast a stone. Let's look at our own lives for a moment. Whether it be a train wreck, whether it be a horrible decision, a season of life, let's just look at us for a second. 
And think for a moment as you take inventory, how many of the worst decisions and perhaps some of the worst experiences that you've had were not preceded in some form or fashion by an attitude of pride? God says, if my people first humble themselves, humble themselves, not trying to be center stage, not putting the focus on ourselves, not looking out for number one, not trying in our spending to spend in a way that appeals to the flesh, not trying in our relationships to use and manipulate and only see what we can get rather than what we can give. Even in regards to God, not just not treating God like a slot machine, only coming to him when we want something or need something, but genuinely humbly coming before him because we realize, we realize that we are broke without him, that we are destitute without him, that we are bankrupt without him, that we cannot make it another day without him. Humbling ourselves to say, God, I need you. I need you more than I've ever needed you before. God says it's a precondition to revival, a precondition to awakening, that we humble ourselves. How often do we make decisions without praying? That's pride. If we knew we needed him enough, we'd pray more. <laughs> you know. How often do we seek after the things that we desire without ever considering if it's not perhaps what God desires? How often do we chart our career path? How often do we, do we chase after dreams that we've never really seriously considered? Is this what God even desires for my life? How often do we think we can embrace sin? And even though no one else may know about it, we assume that God must be fine with it. It's pride. God says, if my people first start humble themselves. Without the first there's not going to be the second. If we don't humble ourselves, we're not going to pray. Without the first one, there's not going to be the third one. If we don't humble ourselves, we'll never seek him. And without the first one, there's not going to be the fourth. If we don't humble ourselves, we're not going to turn from our sin, from our wicked ways. It all starts with humility. But second, God says, if my people will humble themselves and pray. Jim Cimbala pastors a church called Brooklyn Tabernacle, obviously New York City area. It was about to close its doors years ago. Through the years, God has just done an amazing work there, nothing short of a miracle to where many, many, many are being exposed to the gospel, not only in that area, but also even around the world. Look at what he says, um, a quote in a book that I read recently, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I read it for the second time actually recently. Look at what he says. He says, does anyone really think that America today is lacking preachers, books, Bible translations, neat doctrinal statements? He said, what we really lack is the passion to call upon the Lord until he opens the heavens and shows himself powerful. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, we can always use more who go with the gospel. I mean, obviously, Romans chapter 10 talks about that elsewhere in Scripture. We, we always need more to be faithful to present the message of the gospel. However, not to the detriment or not to the neglect of having a heart that prays and prays consistently and prays to the Lord to do things that only he can accomplish. Jesus had an event that took place in his ministry that he chose to put into place two different times, one at the beginning of his, of his ministry, one at the end. And for some, it's been a little bit uh, hard to understand why Jesus would do this. Hopefully, you'll understand it better. Look at what it says in the book of Mark chapter 11. This is an instance where Jesus would clear the temple. He did it again at the first of his ministry and then towards the close of his ministry. Uh, look at the description of it. This is from Mark, uh, the gospel writer Mark, his perspective. 
Look at what it says here. It says, so in verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he, Jesus, entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And and let me just pause there for a second. That in the temple that day, there would have been people that would have come to offer their sacrifices and to give of their offerings. There were Jews in the world that were scattered all around the world in different places outside of Jerusalem. And there were times on the calendar when they would come back again to come to the temple. Well, when they would come to the temple, they inevitably would give of their offering and they would give a sacrifice. Well, when they would come from these other countries, they would need to exchange currency, just like you do if you travel internationally. So they would have to give money, currency that was acceptable in the temple. Things had denigrated so badly in first century Judaism to where it become a religion, not a relationship with God, that when people would bring their money from another country to offer as a as an offering, then, then it would have to be exchanged, and the exchange rate was incredibly exorbitant. There would be a, typically a tax levied on top of that, and on top of that, if they wanted to offer any kind of a sacrifice, the priest would, would, would reject the sacrifice they brought. They would have to buy a sacrifice there on property. And when they bought their sacrifice on property, many times it would be 10 times the amount of what that animal would have normally cost. It was a money-making venture set up right there on the property of the temple. And so Jesus comes this day, and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Imagine the chaos, all right? I mean, you're hearing all kinds of noises. People are shouting. People are screaming. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, all this going on, right? It's just absolute chaos. Money clanking all over the stone floor of the temple. I mean, things have just absolutely erupted. What is going on here is what most everyone would have thought. It says, verse 16, that Jesus would not even permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Look at the reasoning behind this, the next slide. Look at what he says. And he began to teach and to say to them, it is, is it not written? And now he quotes from the Old Testament. That's why it's in all caps. My house shall be called what? A house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. God's house was being hijacked for personal gain. God's house was being hijacked, leveraged for their own personal prideful gain. Jesus, God himself, had a huge issue with that. And he flat cleans house. Cleans house, literally. But how significant that he says that my house shall be known for what? Singing, special events, luncheons, preaching. Those things are important. They have a place. But he says... No, my house shall be known as a house of prayer. Is our church known as a house of prayer? I'm not talking about a special event we may do once or twice a year when people come and pray. Well, we're a church of prayer. I'm not talking about that. Are we collectively in our, on our own known as praying followers of Jesus Christ? after Jesus already just said that my house will be known as a house of prayer. We don't talk to our spouses, marriages die. We don't talk to our kids, fractures happen in those relationships. We don't keep up with our friendships, we don't have conversation, friendships die. But somehow we think that our relationship with God will be just fine, even though we only talk to Him if we need Him. And even though our time spent in conversation with him in prayer is so incredibly inconsistent. God says the choice is yours. If you want to see the eclipse, I've got a part to play. I've got to make sure the conditions are right. But you've got a part to play too. You've got to be in the right place.
Man, you're just going to miss it. And God says, I'll hear your prayers. I'll forgive your sin and I'll heal your land. If you got a part to play, you got to be in the right place. And the first two places to be, the place with a humble heart and a genuine, authentic desire to engage with God in prayer. Do you have a step maybe that needs to be taken to humble yourself today? There are only two ways to be humble. We humble ourselves or we let God humble us. I'll choose the first. He says it's important. And maybe what do you need to do today to be a person of prayer? Captures the heart of God with a heart that bends his ear through genuine prayer. Hey, if you don't know him today, the first step for you is to give your life to Jesus to start with. To say, Lord Jesus, humbly, I need you and your forgiveness. Would you come forgive and take over? And he'll do it. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word is so clear. Wow. Not a whole lot to interpret in this passage, Lord. It's just there. It's plain to see. And oftentimes, perhaps the reason we don't see your hand at work in our culture, in our communities, in our churches, in our lives, is maybe because we have not yet met the conditions. We're still so self-absorbed and prideful that we've turned an ear away from you and we follow a path far from you and we're not willing to come back. But God, if we only humble ourselves, and that can start today, and choose to become people of prayer, which can also start right now. Lord, you've made an amazing promise to us to hear, to forgive, and to heal. And so God, may we follow you this morning, whatever you're leading us to do. Perhaps it's for that one or two or even more who for the first time need to surrender their lives to Jesus. Lord, they can do that right where they sit if they only confess their sin, admit it, accept the payment that Jesus already made at the cross, and invite him, the risen Savior, to forgive them and to take over their life as Savior and Lord. And so God, bless our decisions now. This is big, big stuff. It's not just a service that's about to get out. Lord, this is monumental, life-changing decisions to be made. Help us not to miss them. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.